If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them to the book of Galatians. Um, And as we continue our study through Galatians, we find ourselves at uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Oftentimes in life, we are, as we go through situations, we find that we have run up into uh, a conversation or we overhear a conversation where we need more background information and we, we just don't have it. Uh, we might want it. Sometimes we're kept out of it. Sometimes people will drop insider jokes and won't tell you what that joke is to make you feel excluded. Oftentimes it just happens as a part of everyday occurrence. Not too long ago, my, my wife was in Starbucks and she was waiting in line and um, she texted me this and, and we both thought it was very funny. Uh, she didn't hear much of the conversation, but all she heard was the end of it. Very loudly, this girl said, and he smelled like cheese. Now, when she texted that to me, I wasn't unsure if this was supposed to be a positive or a negative. Like, maybe the date went really well, and he smelled like cheese. Uh, and I don't know what kind of cheese that would necessarily be. There's all kinds of questions that circle in your head. Was this good or bad? Um, presumably bad. I don't know what, what woman would want a man who smelled like cheese, but maybe she was the one, and they were meant for one another. Uh, you, know, you don't know, but there's all kinds of questions you want as background to sort of fill in that information. Well, as we come to these verses... From 11 through 14, there's a lot of information that we would like to have supplied to us here that we just, we just don't get. It's clear that Paul knew of the situation. He, after all, was there and he writes about it. Peter knows of it. Barnabas would know of it. Given the very terse nature of the recounting of this incident, you'll notice that 2, 1 through 10 is one incident, but he drags it on. He, he fills in details for it, but this is such a short compact way of presenting this information, we're probably right in assuming the Galatians knew what was going on as well. But we don't. And so we need to fill in some of this information. So as we come to this text, we will read it in just a moment. We're going to answer um, several questions, hopefully, about this text to sort of fill in the background information about this really important event that occurs in Antioch. We read of this in Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of our God. There are many questions that we want to answer about this. I have six on our page as we work through this particular passage, and we will take these in turn. First, and most important, uh, it seems at, at the very opening is to say, when did this event actually occur? Many people look at this particular text and they say, after 2, 1 through 10, where Peter has given the right hand of fellowship to Paul, he has signed on to Paul's non-circumcision, law-free gospel to the Gentiles, Given that he has already signed on to it, it doesn't make much sense that almost immediately afterwards in Antioch, he finds himself going against that very thing that he has just signed on to. It it seems too quick, and and needless to say, it was very quick. So it doesn't really 
fall in line. And, and furthermore, we know that ancient writers don't care about chronology as much as we do. It, it, it doesn't take much to go back and read the Gospels and realize that the Gospels are not always portraying everything in a strict chronological order. Stories are moved around. They are placed thematically to help the, the stories move and to show what the authors wanted them to show. They're not giving a chronological display of time. And so perhaps that's what Paul is doing here. Perhaps this was a nice bridge, this event was a nice bridge to go into the preaching of the gospel that we find in 15 through 21, the center of the book of Galatians. I doubt that very seriously. Uh, it is most likely that this event does come on the heels of 2, 1 through 10 if for no other reason that that explains why Paul calls this hypocrisy on Peter's part. Peter knows very well that he has co-signed to the gospel that is free of the law to the Gentiles and the Pauline mission. It's very clear that Peter has done that, and that is why he is standing here as a hypocrite. So if we are trying to arrange these things chronologically, even though this doesn't occur with the word then— so in verse 118, Paul says, Then after three years, and 121, then I went into the region, and 2-1, then after 14 years. We don't have a then here. We were right in supposing that it comes directly after that. But that brings us to the second question, and that is, what did Peter actually do? What is actually the problem here? What actually gets Peter into hot water with Paul? And in verse 12, we hear that, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. He pulled himself back away from them. What most people point to then is the food regulations that Jews would have followed at that time. And you can go back into the Old Testament. You can go back into Deuteronomy 14 and passages in Leviticus that say there, there are certain foods that Jews are not allowed to eat. God lays this down. You cannot touch famously pork and Otherwise, certain kinds of fish, certain types of birds, certain types of mammals, you cannot eat those things. You have to be separated from them. And certainly Jews would have upheld that even into the first century. These are things that we typically call boundary markers. And boundary markers within Judaism work just like boundary markers do around your yard. If you have a fence around your yard, typically that fence is outlining the boundaries of your yard. It sets apart your yard from your neighbor's yard. Boundary markers within Judaism work the same way. And there are typically three of these things. There were the food regulations. Jews ate this kind of food. We didn't eat that kind of food. And it sets them apart from all of the other nations. There was, of course, throughout the book of Galatians, the most important one being circumcision for males. Jews, males were circumcised. And thirdly, there was Sabbath regulations. Again, you see how important these things are to the Jews. If you go back and read through the Gospels, Jesus is continually getting in trouble with the Jews for nothing more than working on the Sabbath, even healing people on the Sabbath. Why don't you put it off a day, Jesus? No, he heals hands on the Sabbath, and because he's working on the Sabbath, this gets him into trouble. So many people, knowing that it's about food and knowing that food was part of the dietary restrictions and maybe something that Jews would get antsy about, they say, well, what was probably happening is Peter was eating Gentile food. He was eating pork or shrimp. And then he has this word come from James and whatever is given to him, he says, well, I can't do that anymore. And he withdraws from them. And while perhaps that's right, there are a couple things to notice about this text and to notice about the food laws that point at something much more fundamental than that. Paul says nothing in here about food. He doesn't say that Paul 
or that Peter used to eat Gentile food, but he says that he ate with Gentiles. Peter's problem is not what food he was eating, it's whom he was eating it with. Even if you read back in the book of Acts, there's a very famous vision that Peter gets. The Acts Uh, the book of Acts chapter 10 opens up with the story of Cornelius. Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile and he has a vision given to him that there's a man who is in Joppa by the name of Peter. You're to call to him and have Peter come to you. The the text then switched very abruptly over to Peter and it says that Peter himself has a vision and he's waiting for food and we pick up in in Acts chapter 10 verse 9. It says the next day, As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. You know how this is at Uno's or whatever. (laughs) And he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by the four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter has this vision of a sheet coming down, and of animals that are unclean on animals that Jews wouldn't touch, and they certainly wouldn't eat on it. And he's told to kill one of them and to eat it. And Peter says, I I can't do that. I I don't touch unclean things. I certainly don't eat unclean things. And the the voice comes down, he says, what God has called clean, don't call unclean. You you can kill and you can eat. And, And certainly at that point in time, we realize that there is this sort of relinquishing of the food laws around the Gentiles, right? An interesting thing happens in the very next verse, in verse 17. It says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision he had seen might mean. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Kill and eat the food that you wouldn't have normally eaten. And Peter says, I don't get it. Now, lest you think that Peter is an idiot, he's not. We're stupid because there was more going on. Because what happens the next, very next thing is those men from Cornelius arrive and they say, you need to come and meet Cornelius. Peter goes to Cornelius and he says to them, all the way down in verse 28, you yourselves know how it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. You see, Peter is perplexed because he knows it's not about food. It's about people. The vision that is revealed to him is not about whether he can eat pork or shrimp. It is directly about whether the Gentiles are co-heirs with Christ. And he then has explained by Cornelius the vision that Cornelius has and he presents to them the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and Peter baptizes them and he now understands that the gift of repentance, the gift of faith, and the gift of grace has been given to the Gentiles just as it has the Jews. The food laws were never actually about food. God gives no reasons at all why pork is unacceptable to Jewish people except the fact, except the fact that they were his people and they were to be different. That is the only reason he gives. So even here, while it's nominally about food, it's not really about food. 
It's about the fact that Peter was sitting with Gentiles. He was associating with them. And it's not like waiting at Uno's. It's not like going to Applebee's. We eat around people all the time. If Peter was eating with these folks, it would have been in a house. You might eat around strangers all the time. You might eat around people you don't even like all the time. You probably don't even know them. But you don't eat with strangers in your house. That is rare. For Peter to be invited and for Peter to go into someone's house shows an intimacy and a connection with them that would have been unmistakable in the first century. They were friends. They were related somehow or they were united by something. And for Peter to then start to withdraw from that is to say that I am not united with them. I am not connected with them and the blood of Christ has not brought us together. Peter stopped treating the Gentiles like brothers and sisters in the Lord. That is what he has done. Third question, what is James' role in this? What is James' role in this? We, we hear that these men have come from James. We don't really have much information about James' role. But we do know a couple of things. One, Paul says nothing actually bad about James here. He just says that these certain men have come from James. James sends them to Peter. We don't even know what they bring, the message that they bring. We don't know if they brought James's message or if they said something that they shouldn't have said. All we know is that they had some sort of association with James. But given the fact that Paul does not condemn James, given the fact that he doesn't say a bad word about James, means that James is probably in the right here. Whatever happened, happened, but James is probably not at fault. Frankly, the reason why we think that James might be at fault is because we sense a tension when we read a book like Galatians and then we go read the book of James, who James the Apostle wrote, which James the Apostle wrote. We read that book and we think that Paul and James are always continually in tension. We hear people like Luther talk about how Paul and James are in tension and we read it into something like this. Let it be known, every single place in our scripture where the issue of Gentile inclusion in the church comes up, James is either silent, like in Acts 11, he is vocal in favor of it in Acts 15 and in 2, 1 through 10 here. There is never a place where James seems at all intent on bringing the law to bear upon the Gentiles. James is likely here clear of that. But that brings up the fourth question. Who precisely is this circumcision party? These, this term, circumcision party, can be used in Scripture for both Jewish Christians and Jews. When it's used of Jewish Christians, it probably just means that they are the circumcised portion of the church versus the uncircumcised portion of the church and the Gentiles. As we've already seen in 2, 1 through 10, there was the gospel of the Gentiles and the gospel, or excuse me, the gospel of the uncircumcised and the gospel of the circumcised, right? There, there were two just different groups. Now, they were to be one in Christ, but nevertheless, that there were two different groups. And so it could mean that. These could have been Jewish Christian believers, But this term is also used strictly of people who are circumcised, and that is that they are circumcised, they carry, they have a great importance placed upon circumcision, and they are nothing more than Jews. They're not believers. They're not considered Christian in any way, shape, or form. And so it could be that these were just Jewish people. We don't really have much to go on here, but we know a couple of things. One, Paul very easily could have associated these men as well with James, and he could have associated them with the certain people who came from James, but he doesn't really do that. 
we know that there are certain men who come from James, but he doesn't say that those men were part of the circumcision party. He doesn't say that James is part of the circumcision party. He says nothing about them in reference to the circumcision party. All he says is those men came from James, told Peter something, and that Peter feared the circumcision party. It is highly unlikely that Peter, the apostle, the apostle of the Lord, second maybe in the early church only to James, would have feared any any Christian faction. Peter was the one who stood up in Acts 11 and explained to the church why it was that he, on his own authority, baptized Gentiles into the church. He does it without a trace of fear, assuming that because he is an apostle and because the Spirit of the Lord was working in this manner, that they would follow him. It's highly unlikely he was afraid of James, and it's highly unlikely that he was afraid of Christians. There is a good chance, however, that he was afraid of Jews. When you go back into the book of Acts, you you meet almost immediately a grating relationship between Christians and especially Peter and John and the Jewish rulers who forbid them to preach in the name of Jesus. This Jesus, you gotta gotta be quiet about that. The famous word and response was, well, whether we should fear you or God, you've gotta decide, but we're gonna fear God and we're going to continue to preach the name of Jesus Christ. As we go forward in time, Paul then begins to persecute the church. After the stoning of Stephen at which Paul was present and affirming, the church then has to spread out and spread from Jerusalem. But just because Paul is then changed on the Damascus Road and brought into the church doesn't mean that that wave of persecution stopped. He might have started the wave, he might have been a huge portion of that wave, but removing Paul did not stop the wave. Persecutions continued Eventually, in Acts chapter 12, we read this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. That is, there were the rulers who were set against the church. The people generally went along with it. But then what do we find? Almost immediately, Herod, after killing James, and we don't even know why he kills this James. This is a different James than the one in Galatians. We don't know why he kills him, but he kills him. And then immediately he finds something interesting. He gets the approval of the Jews for doing so. It is not just the Jewish leadership now. It's the Jews in general who are approving of the persecutions of Christians. And like all of the leaders in Judea, when you are ruling over Jerusalem, there is one thing that you are concerned about, and that is pleasing the Jews who are there. Go back and read the accounts of the crucifixion of Christ and try and figure out why is it that Pontius Pilate, who thought that Christ was innocent of what he was being charged with, let him be crucified. He let him be crucified for one reason and one reason only, to acquiesce to the demands of the Jews because he didn't want a riot. If they rioted, Not only would they die, but he knew very well he was going to die as well. Now, you you try and calm the Jews who are in Jerusalem. And so because he found that this was something that they liked, he goes after Peter as well. It is likely that even while Peter escapes, he realizes, and the word that comes from James then is a word that is saying, listen, the persecution is getting ramped up here. The men that come from James tell him something about persecution that's going on in the church. And because he feared that persecution, perhaps because he feared that 
maybe his evangelism would be less effective if they knew that he was gallivanting with Gentiles. Perhaps he was simply out to preserve his name, whether the fear was noble or whether the fear was ignoble. Peter realizes that there is a problem going on in Jerusalem and the only action he can think of is to pull away from the Gentiles so that that persecution, that problem might be abated. And therefore, we have the answer to number five. What is Peter's hypocrisy? It is highly unlikely that Peter just up and changes his mind about everything. Peter doesn't just wake up one day and say, oh yeah, that whole justification in Christ thing, really it's not any good. We're going to have to circumcise everybody. Just because a word comes from James or just because of fear of the circumcision group. We use the word hypocrisy to mean all kinds of things. And, and it kind of does in, in the first century as well, but it also meant something very specific, and that was it was a term that was used for actors. What did actors do when they acted? They were hypocrites. They were literally play-acting. That's what it was used for. It was putting on a face, not believing that you're Caesar, not believing that you're a Greek god, but you're pretending to be one. That is precisely what Paul charges Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews with. If you go down to verses 15 and 16, which we will talk about next week, you get a sense of this. As Paul is rebuking Peter, Paul rebukes Peter not because his theology has changed, but because his theology is indeed the same, but he's not walking in line with that theology. Listen to what he says in verse 16. We know, we know, not just me and the people who I'm with, but even the people who Paul was with are now separated from him, right? Barnabas has turned and become hypocritical. When he says we, he's talking about Paul, Peter, the rest of the Jews who are Christians. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We all agree on that. There isn't a, a division over that. That is what we agree on. The problem is that Peter's not walking in line with that. The problem is that Peter is, as Paul says, is not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul is being a hypocrite, or Peter is being a hypocrite. Peter knows what is good and right, but he's play-acting. He's pretending like the Gentiles aren't full heirs to avoid this circumcision party, to avoid whatever problems they might bring to him or his family. And so he pulls away from the Gentiles, and therefore, we come to the last question. That is, what does Paul mean in verse 14? Paul says, he doesn't walk in step with the truth of the gospel, that Paul's actions weren't in line with his theology, that he had good theology, but he wasn't actually living that out. Paul says that's a problem. We, as a, as a church collectively, are, are theological, I think. Uh, we're a very good theological church. We're very well-grounded in theology, and that is very good. But good theology with bad conduct is worthless. Good theology with improper living is worthless. Good theology with unholiness in your life and in your practice is worthless, just as worthless as bad theology with as much good works as you can muster. In order to be Christian, you need not only good theology, but you also need to walk in line with that truth. Paul calls Peter out on this, and he questions him, and this question is important. He says, if you though a Jew. Later on, in verse 15, he will say, we are Jews by birth. He says, listen, Peter, you had every advantage. You don't have to be circumcised as an adult. You were circumcised as an eight-day-old child. 
you didn't have any fear of circumcision. You didn't have to go through the pain or the problem of circumcision because you totally didn't understand what was going on. You were eight days old. You were raised on your mama's knee as she told you the Ten Commandments, as she talked to you about this God and about his laws and about his requirements. You were raised in a culture where those requirements were upheld and were were seen as good things and were stepping out of line of those things was frowned upon. You didn't have a temptation to go sideways from the law. Every place you stood, every place you went, every time you went to the temple, you would hear messages about faithfulness to the law. You had every single advantage, Peter. And yet you, today, live like a Gentile. Why is that, Pete? He clearly lives as a Gentile because living like a Jew under the law trying to make your way to God through the law was found by Peter and by everyone else who is a Christian as a worthless way to be justified. Peter knows that. Peter knows it. And oftentimes, when we speak of Jewish people, we look at them with this this disdain in the Old Testament. Like, oh, the Jews, they keep fouling up the law. They're, They're continually pulling themselves away from Christ. They're not doing what God has commanded them to do. They're worthless and vile people. You can hear Christian preachers throughout centuries saying that. That is completely the opposite of the New Testament witness. The witness isn't that the Jews were weak. The witness isn't that the Jews were unable, that they were fallible where now the Gentiles can do it. That's not the witness. The witness is if the Jews with all of their advantages couldn't do it the chosen people descended from Abraham himself, if they could not keep the law, what hope do you have? That is exactly what Paul says to Peter here. If you are a Jew and you know that you cannot keep the law, how can you possibly force that upon the Gentiles and think that they are going to do any better? The question becomes, how is he forcing this upon the Gentiles? Well, there's rhetoric here. You'll notice that this idea of forcing comes up in 2.3, where he talks about these false brothers that have crept in. But in 2.3, he also says that he took Titus along to see if he would be forced to be circumcised. Whether Peter, John, and James would look at Titus, who is a Greek, and say, in order to be accepted by us, he needs to be circumcised. Paul says, you didn't agree with forcing it then, but now your actions, your actions imply that you are forcing them to be circumcised. If they are not good enough to meet with you, if they are not good enough to eat with, if they're not good enough to have fellowship with, if you're not going to include them as co-heirs in Christ, then what you are telling the Gentiles is that in order to be good enough for you, Peter, and therefore in order to be good enough for the church and God himself, they need to be Jews. Just as much as we have to always think about our theology and checking it against scripture to make sure that we are thinking rightly. We also need to make sure that we check our conduct to see if we are walking rightly. Likewise, we need to make sure that the way in which we walk is something that can be modeled. This isn't just for elders. It's clearly part of the issue of being an elder and being a deacon is that you are representatives of Christ, that we should be able to say with Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There is good in that, but that is everyone's Christian witness. The damning thing for Peter here 
as Paul says, that he stands condemned, that he is a hypocrite, that he doesn't walk in line with the truth of the gospel. The thing that's going to condemn Peter here is not his theology. And it's not even just that he is falling away, but what's worse is that his practice is pulling others away as well. And his theology is not going to save them either. We have influence in how we act, and we must be careful about that. While we've had implications as we go through, I want to mention just a couple of things in passing as we come to a close on this passage. First, what is Peter's vice? Peter's downfall here is nothing less than the dread of man. It is the fact that he dreads men. It is the dread of man. It is his fear of the circumcision party that leads him into condemnation. Listen, when, when you fear something, you work to get yourself away from it. You try to avoid it. If you have a fear of spiders, right, you don't run up to spiders and hold out your hand that they can crawl on them. You run from them and you cry for your spouse to come and kill them. If you have a, a fear of heights, you don't sign up to go skydiving, right? Or if you do, you back out at the last second because you're a fool, right? You don't walk up to the edge of cliffs. If you have a fear of heights, you keep yourself away from things that will provoke that fear, we have fears so that we run away from those things. We have fears to appease those fears. As Peter here is fearing the circumcision party, he acts in such a way to abate that fear. He acts in such a way so that he won't incur their wrath, so that he can limit the amount of influence that they have. And in doing so, he forgets that his number one fear ought to always be God. And he finds that he is not fearing God. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. It, it catches you and it won't let you go. It sounds a lot like sin. It turns around and says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear those who can kill the body and the soul in hell. When you fear man, you will work and you will live and you will act and you will speak in such a way to appease men. This is nothing more than the contention that Paul had earlier for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That's a question for you. Do you live in dread of man or of God? Who are you seeking to appease? Who are you seeking to bring the praise to? Is it man or is it God? Peter's downfall here is that he is afraid of men. Paul's virtue, however, is the discipline of man. As I want to say very clearly and quickly, that while Peter Peter's an easy target for us. Every time he appears in scripture, he seems to be doing stuff that's kind of wrong. And he's lauded at times as well. There, there's a reason why the early church looked up to him. But more than anyone else in the New Testament, Peter does things that are wrong. And this is one of those instances where Peter does things that are wrong. It's very easy to beat up on Peter because of that. And to say, ah, Peter has a foot-shaped mouth and other things that pastors like to say is a really good illustrative case of a number of things that you ought not do. But he is, because of those things, 
an excellent case of what every one of us needs to be, and that is correctable. Peter fails here. He fails the Lord. He fails other disciples. He fails, he fails, he fails. But every single time we see Peter fail, we see him being correctable by those things. Now, Paul doesn't give us the end game here. Paul has larger fish to fry, so to speak, and so he moves on from Peter right away. But you'll notice that Paul has already written chapters 1 and 2, 1 through 10 before he gave us this incident. And what's more, he must have written those then after that incident happened. And in those chapters, Peter is upheld as a Christian in every single one of them. He is not upheld as a false brother. Paul specifically calls out the false brothers in opposition to the apostles. He continually calls Peter an apostle. And he says, even Peter here. The idea is even Peter fell away with this kind of stuff. There's every indication within the text that Paul does not think that Peter has fallen away for good. There's every reason to think that Peter has listened to what Paul said to him and agreed with it. You have to imagine how humbling that must have been for Peter. This man who now shows up was a man who persecuted the church while Peter was there. He sat by and collected the coats of men who were killing Peter's friends, who would have sat by while Peter himself was imprisoned had the Lord not intervened in his life, who would have watched as the Jewish leadership and even the Gentiles would have ripped apart Peter's family, gladly watching it happen if the Lord had not interceded in his life. And he now, as the apostle who has been with Jesus since the beginning, who was the apostle of the apostles, has to listen to an upstart who calls himself the last of the apostles upbraid him in front of everybody. And he listens. You see, Paul didn't do this just to make an idiot out of Peter. He didn't do this simply to annoy Peter. He didn't do this because Paul is right and Peter is wrong. He did this because Peter stood condemned. He did this out of love for Peter because he knew the road that Peter was walking down. And if he continued down that road, Paul said he was condemned. Very, very strong language. He wasn't walking in truth of the gospel. He did it not just for Peter, but he did it for Barnabas. He did it for all the Jews who were there because they too were walking down a road that would have led to their condemnation. And what's more, he did it for all of the Gentiles. For if this would have stood, it would have undercut all of Paul's message and it would have led a great deal of Gentiles into accepting circumcision and therefore accepting the law as a way to be justified and it would have condemned them as well. I feel like I talk a lot about discipline, and maybe that's in the wrong, but discipline is a good thing when handled the right way. Discipline is always meant for salvation for the one who undergoes discipline. So you need to hear that word when somebody comes to you and says, I've got a concern about this, or I've got a concern about that in your life. You need to receive that as Peter received it. And do introspection and see if there is a wicked way in you. See if this is something that is a problem that you need to address. But also, you need to be very careful that when you approach people, you are doing it for the reason of salvation, not because you dislike something. Who cares if you dislike something? 
if you are approaching people because you've got problems with this or with that, man, you are just creating a burden for your brothers and sisters. But if you are coming to them, honestly caring about their salvation, thinking that the road that they are walking down will lead them to judgment, you have to act. None less than James himself says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is a virtue on Paul's part, that he is not afraid of men, that he is able to stand up to anyone and tell them the truth of the gospel, but to do it in such a way that he honestly seeks and longs for their salvation in the Lord. Not simply so that Paul will be right, and not simply so that they will be made fools, but so the good of the gospel might go forward. Peter's hypocrisy threatened to undo the truth of the gospel. Paul's actions not only restored Peter, but he preserved the truth of the gospel for us. We would not be here today. This incident in Antioch is incredibly important. If this one thing, if Paul didn't step up this one time, our futures would have been in jeopardy. Millions of people could have had the gospel lost to them because of it. We ourselves are saved from the very wrath of God only because of the work of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. Jesus dies to the requirements of the law so that we no longer have to fulfill it. He has died for our sins and he has died to the requirements that God has placed upon us that we sin in so that we no longer have to fulfill those. Therefore, we don't need to worry about the law anymore or in any way, shape, or form earning our place before God. It is the death of Jesus Christ that pays for our sins. It is his life in the resurrection that becomes our life. What can our good works add to that? What do those works do, even if they are good things, but pollute the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? What does God require of you, sinner? What does he require of me? Does he require that we make ourselves more fit for him before we come? Does he require great acts of devotion? Does he require mighty deeds of Bravery. Are you supposed to demonstrate in your flesh your devotion to God before he will accept you? Do you have to go out of your way to show with signs of severity and ascetity this great act of devotion before God before he looks at you and says, yes, that is good and true? Do you have to learn theology down to the nitty-gritty so that you can prove that your knowledge of God is sufficient for him to accept you? Do you have to manage to figure out insights into the mysteries of God and his inaccessible nature. No, God, God requires none of this from you. He requires neither circumcision, nor laws of eating, nor days of observance. All he requires of you is your knowledge that he requires nothing of you but faith. And that faith placed in the cross of Jesus Christ. That you are saved from your sin, you are saved from your evil, you are saved from the wrath of God, you are saved from his judgment, you are saved from hell, you are saved from yourself, you are saved from the penalty of sin then, and you are saved from the reality of sin even now, as God is moving that out of you through the work of the Holy Spirit and by sanctification. 
you require only faith in Christ. The message of the gospel. Jesus' death alone frees those who trust in him from their sins, and his resurrection establishes a perfect kingdom that awaits fulfillment. Jesus will and can and does take you as dead as you are in your, de- in your sins and trespasses, and he will make you alive. That is the power of our Lord, and that is the power of the cross. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have no salvation other than him. We cannot earn our spot before you. We do not come to you proclaiming that we are good and holy. For that shows not only a lack of you, but a lack of, a lack of understanding you, but a lack of understanding who we are. A lack of our sinfulness and our dirtiness before you. We do not come to you proclaiming secret mysteries that allow us in, passwords that will open the door to us. We don't come to you proclaiming that a few select words will make us right before you. We don't come to you proclaiming that we are in because we follow certain set rules or because we will be better in the future. We come to you only proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ as our only hope, our only refuge We ask, Father, that you hear our cry this morning. Grant us salvation in Jesus Christ for those who know Jesus Christ. Deepen their faith and their belief. Let that be as an anchor in their soul that makes them unmovable in the tides and the storms of life. Let us be firm. Jesus Christ saves sinners and no one else, not even sinners. We cannot stand before you, God, but our Lord does. And he intercedes on our behalf. So accept us through him this day. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.